feel like every second or third podcast, we're coming back from some kind of a brief hiatus. So uh, once again, we are back. And we're really back this time. We even have Keith on board. And uh, I thought before we got into all of the Leafs moves from the last couple of weeks between free agency and the draft, it's been busy. Uh, but I thought it would be good to have a little sharing circle first and we can uh we can all learn what the boys have been up to so why don't we start with our resident cool guy keith you've been uh racking up the the frequent flyer miles yeah uh a lot of work travel for me uh in the last couple of months i've been to toronto like twice i think i was in houston i was in st louis um was supposed to go to dallas made it as far as the montreal airport had four flights consecutively canceled and had to rent a car and drive home. Um, so I've, yeah, the, the whole, everything you're hearing about airports right now is absolutely true. They're fucking nightmares. Um, and I was then supposed to go to Kansas city, which got canceled. Thank God. So all that is over. I no longer have to travel for probably another like six months or so. So I'm pretty excited about that, but it's been, it's been a long, long time since we, since I've fired this up. So I'm excited to be back. How many ballparks did you get to, Keith? I went to three. Uh, Skydome, obviously. Uh, and then Houston, Minute Maid Park. And then um, St. Louis. Uh, which, what is that? Bush? Bush Stadium? Yeah. Anyways, obviously so much nicer than Toronto. <laughs> like, the, the, like Minute Maid, I wouldn't even say Minute Maid was that much nicer than the Rogers Center Skydome. Like, it was all right, but it still had that like cavernous dome kind of feel to it. Thankfully, it is a dome because it was like 110 degrees when I was down there. So there was air conditioning. And then, uh, but St. Louis is your just prototypical American ballpark. It's beautiful. You got the arch, the skyline behind it and everything. Like it feels like you're in what a baseball stadium should feel like, but it was also like a hundred and something degrees when I was there and it's open air. So you could, you could really feel it, which I, so I get why Texas has, has theirs in domes, but yeah, it was uh it's, it's a different experience like going to a ball game there than, than Toronto for sure. You got to, to see a, a pro ball game too, didn't you Cam? Yeah. First time Vancouver Canadians. I was uh, on a little trip out West Calgary, Vancouver, Victoria, uh, lovely time. Keith is right about the the flights. It's total ass, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but it worked out fine on our end. And uh, yeah, had a really really nice trip. Ate very well. Um, yeah, might might be really upping the podcast. Uh, uh, you know, production over the next few months because I don't know if I'll be leaving the house to do anything that costs any amount of money after uh, <laughs> yeah. the last week or so but yeah um but yeah no it was great and yeah i got to got to check out a vancouver canadians game it's a high a ball that's a, a jays affiliate really fun minor league baseball great time minor league baseball is amazing i i need to try to do that more especially like all throughout the northeast like if you go you know like there's new hampshire the fisher cats there like that's not too far from me like i i need to and then i think portland maine has one too so there's enough you know, within a reasonable driving distance, like every, I've only been to a couple, but they're always a blast. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really fun. Uh, had a, had a great trip overall, great weather. Like you got a little sprinkle of rain on the last day in Vancouver and that was it. It was, uh, it was ideal. So it was, uh, it was good. Nick, you, uh, you've put the boat away for the, uh, fishing season and, and the draft is wrapped up. How you been enjoying the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's been nice to kind of have a little bit of a breather here. I've been getting into some baseball activities myself, uh, not traveling so far from home, just kind of suiting up in our, our amateur league around here. First time I've played competitive ball in like 12, 13 years. So, uh, it, it's taken a minute to get back into it, but it's been a ton of fun, really enjoying being back into it. Glad that 13 years away from it didn't keep me from getting back into it and yeah just really enjoying it hoping that uh rack up a few more hits here in the coming weeks because it's been a struggle at the plate <laughs> tough i can't imagine how like how i saw the video that you sent and how, like I, i'm trying to like wrap my head around the pitching velocity like i'm sure i couldn't even make contact with that but like do you have any idea how hard they're throwing in your league i think there's probably a couple of guys that touch 80 to a little bit over that, but for the most part, it's probably in the, 
the 70 to 75 range, you know, a few of the older guys that are still playing probably hucking 60, 65 <laughs> junk ballers. So, yeah. They've, they've got some stuff there. There's some movement on those pitches. And I'll tell you when I was playing uh, 13 years ago or whatever, I, I wasn't seeing too many curveballs like I'm seeing now. So it's yeah. definitely been an adjustment, but yeah, it's been a ton of fun. Um, man, I growing up in New Brunswick, you guys, Cape Breton, specifically Glace Bay, just had such a reputation for just a baseball factory, you know, compared like, especially considering like the population there, it was, we played Glace Bay twice and both times just got absolutely demolished. Like we were pretty good in our like league or kind of like, and then we would put together kind of like our new Brunswick under whatever age all-star team and go play in the Atlantics. And we would get like 10 run mercy ruled within like two, two innings against Glace Bay every time. I'll never, <laughs> like I was, I learned how to throw a curveball long before like most people, I, I don't know how I just ended up picking it up and I was, that's all I couldn't throw hard, but I was just a junk ball pitcher. And I remember throwing a curveball to a kid against Glace Bay and he just watched it and kind of like caught him off guard. And he just like laughed and then I threw it again and he hit it. I don't think it's landed <laughs> since then. <laughs> so, like, just incredible baseball players there. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, Leafs have been busy in the meantime. Um, so we, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. And I, I figure that the place we should probably start is kind of the position that has changed around the most, I suppose, over the last couple of weeks. And, and we expected that goaltending would um, you know, be in for that kind of change. We expected Jack Campbell would leave most likely for a, a long-term deal with the Edmonton Oilers, which is exactly what happened at five years, five million per. Um, so Leafs in need of a starting goaltender. Peter Morazic was also shipped out at the draft. We'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, so Leafs basically starting fresh in the crease and they decide to go with Matt Murray, uh, who they acquire from the Ottawa Senators and Ilya Samsonov, who they signed after he went unqualified by the Washington Capitals. Two guys who are, to say the least, coming off uh, tough seasons. Um, and, and, you know, this is this is kind of it for the Leafs, at least for, for this year. These are the guys that uh, Kyle Dubas is kind of uh, uh, putting his eggs in their basket, so to speak. Um, and I I, I still don't know how to feel about it, fellas. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I think that a lot of people are probably in the boat where they, they would have felt a bit better about the Murray situation if maybe the the retention were there. It was uh, 25% retained, right, instead of 50%, and they didn't get, uh, you know, too much in, in terms of concessions, just a couple of picks, a third and a seventh, right? So, um, I mean, it wasn't uh, – I don't think it was Kyle Dubas' best work, and he, and he almost kind of admitted as much um, when, when talking about the deal afterwards but um that's that's who they decided to go with and and i'm wondering kind of after the dust has set a little bit how you guys are feeling about it nick yeah uh, to say that i was underwhelmed with the deal initially would be an understatement uh but i think after leaving it sit a little while and just kind of taking all the factors into account uh, I, i'm a little more okay with it now uh that as you said the dust has settled a little bit i think the big thing for dubas and his front office was not really wanting to be locked into any kind of term in the crease. We all know how volatile the position is year to year and just how unpredictable players can be in that position. So I think the fact that there's a little bit of flexibility with the with the term that they're locked into in the crease was a big thing for them in terms of maybe Matt Murray versus signing Jack Campbell to that deal because overall the cap hit isn't significantly different. But when you're looking down the road and forecasting the the salary cap situation in a couple of years, you, we all know there's a, a couple of big guys coming up for a renewal in a couple of seasons. So I think that kind of taking the swing on Murray and only having him locked in for two years is kind of the biggest benefit to that deal, especially for a guy who has shown to be a, a quality goaltender in the past. Um I also felt a little bit better about it after seeing the entire picture and being able to bring in Samsonov. Not that he offers a whole lot more in terms of certainty with what you're going to get out of him next season. But I think now, rather than having all of their eggs in the Jack Campbell basket, they have a couple of options that they can kind of see who's going to be the hot hand and see if one of those guys is able to kind of turn into a long-term solution there. Samsonov is still going to be a restricted free agent after this one-year deal that the Leafs have him on. 
for just 1.8 million. So I think that was a nice little piece of business dipping into that market for the, uh, the unqualified goaltender out of Washington. Uh, time's going to tell, I guess, but you look around the league and how many guys are there that you can say with any certainty are going to be a a true number one goaltender from year to year. You you know, you've got Shesterkin, Vasilevsky, Hellebuck, Beyond that, it, you really have to start thinking hard about the next name on the list. So I, I don't hate it now that the dust has settled a little bit, but it's uh, it's definitely an uncertain situation moving forward. That said, the Leafs had their best season in franchise history last year with, what, the fifth or sixth worst team save percentage in the entire NHL. So as strong as Jack Campbell started off earlier in the year, uh, his struggles in the middle part of the year and Mrazik's struggles all throughout the year. It, Matt Murray and Ilya Samsonov don't have to do a whole lot to, you know, on aggregate, be better than that. Yeah, that you, you kind of just touched on a couple of the things that I was kind of have gone through my head, I guess, since since this has happened, and I I don't want to be too. I don't know what the right word is for this, but like if you were to tell us, you know, at the end of the season that you know, Matt Murray was going to be starting opening night. I think we all would have laughed at that. Like I, I, we, I got to kind of keep that in mind that he has not been good. Not to be too revisionist. No, he is not. And I don't want to just be like, Oh, like now that I've thought about it for like, you know, at first glance, not great. Like, I think we can all agree that, that, that maybe isn't our first choice. And then, like you said, Cam, um, probably easier to swallow if it's 50%. I was even hoping for a third team to grab some more of that, you know, to get them closer to like 2 million. So it's, it's tough that way, but at the same token, like look, evaluating it at and kind of independently of, of the names associated with it. Like you just said, Nick, the, the bar super low. I think like you were, you're right. They had the sixth worst save percent, even strength save percentage in the league last year. They're, they don't have to be that good. Um, and I don't necessarily, I mean, you can't be worse than what Mrazic was in, and even, you know, Shalgrim was a nice story for a while, but overall he, he wasn't all that strong either. And from pretty much Christmas on Campbell was awful. You know, he had a little bit of a resurgence at the end. So it's, I, I would be, it would be very difficult for them to be like worse. Not, I'm, I'm sure this is going to get clipped and i'll be but i mean at the same time i've been a huge proponent for having an actual tandem for a while i if you don't have one of those and, five and they boys, tried that last yeah year, you're right, right. like but it was a, a tandem they're just taking another swing on it, it was a tandem last year i mean it just happened that mrazic was hurt all the time and dog shit when he was healthy so it, there was no question that campbell was the starter but going into the season yeah it was very much like a maybe like a you know a 50 30 kind of split in mind or or you're even more closer to 50 50 so i yeah i don't know i i just think that you you have in this kind of tandem situation you're you're kind of there's insurance for one guy getting hurt you've you still got a quality nhl goaltender um you know if, and then you just if both guys are healthy you just ride the hot hand like you don't necessarily have to have a, a starter that plays you know six games in a row if there's no back-to-back like get them rest keep them fresh ride the hot hand i, I if you don't have one of those five goalies in the league that are a sure thing every year and even that's probably generous then you have no idea what you're getting in, in net right now. So 20 something teams are in the same boat realistically. So, and I think they're the team, you know, the Leafs team is, is good enough to kind of overcome some warts. Um, but yeah, it, it's still not, it's not confidence inspiring having those two, I guess, as your, your goalies going into the season, but also I'll take it over doing Campbell five by five, just because that's what the market dictates right now. Doesn't mean that it's not way too much money and way too much term. Yeah. I'm very happy to, to have not committed like big, uh, not even just the big money, but the big term to Campbell or, or really anyone else. Like you said, there's only so many guys who deserve that. And, and, you know, committing term to Mrazic burned them last year. Um, and and like, I'll fully admit to, to a little bit of like hypocrisy here because I've advocated it like on this podcast in the past for like, you know, go out, get a 
couple of, of goalies with good track records who, uh, you know, have maybe had an off year and, and could look to bounce back. Now, you might say with both of those guys, it's been a little more of a trend than just kind of a, a one year setback. But, um, you know, I, I still think that, like, as far as pedigree goes, you, you could do worse. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that that's, I guess, kind of the 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 trade off is, you know, maybe I, I, I may like the process in theory, but now that it's actually being executed, I'm, wish for it. like, oh, God, are these the two? Are these the guys we're going but with? I mean, Jesus Christ, this is going to be, you know, first round pedigree and two cups isn't a bad thing to fall back like if you are going to gamble on bounce back you know these guys have had it it, you know we're not it's not like guys coming out of nowhere like kind of like even like Kemper like he was a backup forever and not really you know I think he was like a sixth round pick or something like that like yeah I mean if you're gonna gamble like they've they've got all right resumes behind them albeit pretty poor performance lately and I I think it's kind of important to break down the goaltending performances from last season into segments like we all raved about Jack Campbell for the first few months of the season, and rightfully so. He was spectacular. But that didn't hold up over the course of the season. And on the other side of the coin, Matt Murray's overall numbers from last season don't look that great. But you take out – he didn't play a lot, so it was kind of a small sample size. And if you take out you know, that one or, or two really ugly performances from him, uh, I think there was one game against Arizona. He gave up eight or something like that. But – in through 18 games, I, I think he had like a 930 plus save percentage before those couple of bad performances. So th- th- there is a, a little bit of a, a, a sliver of hope there, so to speak, in terms of him being able to find it again. And yeah, it just like it comes down to the question of how much more certainty does Jack Campbell represent than what Matt Murray does? And I think that's where you really come into talking about the term that you're locked into. And if you're uncertain about what you're going to get out of any of these guys, I think it's best to not be locked into any kind of term. Exactly, because it is very much like a musical chairs game every summer with goaltenders. You know, you're often seeing guys like just straight up trading places through free agency. And, you know, you can't convince yourself that you can avoid the musical chairs game by signing a guy to term, right? Like you could still very well end up back there next summer, except you've got to get out from under like a four or five year contract first, as we saw with with Peter Mrazek uh, at the draft. So it's it's certainly, I think, a better position to, yeah, have have a couple of guys who uh, you can kind of get out from easily uh, term wise uh, rather than locking yourself in. So uh, we'll see <laughs> And if we're going to talk about like leafy outcomes. I think what would be even worse than Campbell going to Edmonton and putting up like a 928 is if Morazic does it in Chicago. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we well that's, there, that's, that's the other thing because like, you know, like I'm talking about the realm of possibility. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like I'm saying with the, uh, you know, bank on a guy who, who's you kind of like their track record and think that they'll bounce back. Like, it's one gamble to make on that end, but when you also ship out a guy and allow someone else to make that gamble on the guy that you signed to big money, uh, yeah, that could, could definitely blow up in your face if, if you know, of the three guys, Mrazic's the one who who has the, the turnaround and the other, the other two just kind of continue their downward trend. That's it's not going to be a good look at all. And that's entirely possible, as Keith said, but I think when you're looking at it from like a human standpoint, which reminder to everyone like these players are still human you couldn't really go back to the Peter Morazic well again next season with how it went for him here last season I think the change of scenery thing is a real thing and you know all these teams are going to be hoping that the the change of scenery is what helps turn things around for their respective acquisitions in net yeah. I, I think what's clear, though, like, you know, I was talking about the musical chairs game is that Dubas kind of lost it this year, th- that game. And, you know, he ended up with a couple of guys that maybe they're they're content with after all. And, you know, obviously the Samsonov thing that, that worked out with with him not being qualified. And that's a guy with, you know, at least some kind of uh, uh, of potential that that hopefully you can unlock. But um, all you have to do is kind of look at the, the timeline of how it all played out. Right. Like it, the Leafs were. were quite literally the the last one left just sitting there looking for a chair yeah it it was uh, and the samsonov thing is complete bullshit luck like he didn't know i mean maybe he knew but i doubt he knew that he wasn't gonna get qualified and he was you know he was just gonna fall into his lap like that because there's not a whole lot of other yeah it felt like so much else fell through yeah um 
so yeah, Jack Campbell goes to Edmonton. Ilya Mikheyev also moves on as expected. Uh, he signs with Vancouver and, and got some pretty good money to do so. Uh, and then the Leafs went shopping. Um, and we'll kind of cycle through a bunch of these guys who, who have signed on in Toronto here over the last week or so. Uh, let's start with uh, one of the more recent ones. Callie Yarncroak is, uh, I don't know if I would have expected that, you know, he'd be the guy who's signed on for the longest of the Leafs forward group by the end of this uh, free agency period, but that could be the case. Four-year deal. Um, what were your thoughts on this one? Because I, I I really like his game. I think that he was maybe a guy that we talked about as a potential deadline pickup uh, this past season, and now he's with Toronto on a four-year deal. Tenacious guy. Think that uh, yeah, he's he's a versatile guy, someone who could really uh, really chip in in a lot of areas for the Leafs. What were your thoughts on the on the length of the contract, though, Nick? Yeah, I think you said it. It was kind of a little bit surprising that <laughs> you look around the Leafs. For- Forward group and no one's under contract for longer than Callie Aaron is right now. But I also think that he was probably worthy of a little bit more than the $2.1 million cap hit that the Leafs got him on. So maybe that the term was a bit in exchange for a lower number than he might have got on, say, a two or three year deal. Uh, but I, I really like the addition, uh, as you said, versatile player who can kind of do a lot of different things. He's going to provide solid defensive value. He can play up and down the lineup. He can play all three forward positions. And he he does have a little bit of scoring touch, which is something that was missing in the bottom six for the Leafs last year. And when, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when you, you really look at the, the makeup of the forward group now and you know, the, the cap issues that still remain, Callie Yarncroke seems like a pretty decent replacement for a guy like Alexander Kerfoot if they do decide to move on from him in the coming days and weeks here. He, he does a lot of the same things, maybe not at quite the same level, um, but it, he just fills kind of a similar role as a guy who can be slotted in all over the lineup and chip in with a little bit of offense while being able to give you some minutes on the penalty kill and things like that. So I, I think if that's the route that they decide to go and they they replace Alexander Kerfoot, uh, a guy who's a pending unrestricted free agent next offseason, and you've got a guy like Yaron Croak who can do a lot of the same things, he's locked in for a little bit longer at a cheaper number. I, I think it just creates a little bit of flexibility in terms of what the, the Leafs are going to be able to do uh, over the course of the rest of the offseason here. Yeah, I, I mean, especially the replacement for Kerfoot at you know about a million and a half less too, which allows you to kind of deepen the bottom six even more. Um, I'm, I'm curious about where he fits into because like, I don't know if... I mean, oh, we're, we'll probably talk about Obey Kubel here in a minute, but I don't know if he's going to be... Is he a true fourth line guy or is he you know somebody that might get a look at the third line and then you've got Engvall so it's is Yarn Croak gonna get a look besides Tavares and Nylander I think that's an interesting fit because like you said he does have a bit of a scoring touch like he's he's kind of been in that 12 to 15 goal range his entire career um but just his defensive impacts making up for Nylander and Tavares who you know don't necessarily excel at, at that side of the game I think could be an interesting balance I don't know what if he's necessarily going to help them out offensively but you know for the way that those guys produced last year with you know not necessarily having a consistent or you know Mikheyev kind of slotted in there all right with them I guess but yeah I mean it's it's the fit in the lineup I'm I'm curious about with Yarncroke I'd like to see him kind of solidify a role because um, that's I think been a bit of a knock on Kerfoot is that he hasn't necessarily kind of found a role and ran with it which blessing the, and a curse for Kerfoot really yeah exactly the, the alternative exactly the alternative is that you can slide him up and down and and he, he seems to still play out pretty well but like you said I think Yarncroke brings a lot of that to the Leafs and you know from an asset management standpoint it, you know you've got them for the next few years whereas Kerfoot's expiring and likely not a guy you're going to be able to afford so I really like that really like the deal I like the player and I'm kind of excited to see a bit more tenacity and and then the fact that you're like I said you're taking the 3.5 that Kerfoot I mean we're talking about this like it's a foregone conclusion but I think we all kind of see the writing on the wall with Kerfoot and you know, if you're able to get two guys that can play, you know, a, a good kind of middle, you know, middle six, bottom six kind of four checking game um, for the price of one, I think we saw in the playoffs that I think we all kind of looked at 
Tampa's third line with a bit of envy um, could be could be something that that's able to to kind of take place now that you uh, spread that out a little bit more. Yeah, and I think if Yarncroke does kind of slide into that Kerfoot role where he you know maybe doesn't have uh, maybe it's not even so important that he has like that defined role because uh, I think it's a little more palatable to to have a guy who's making like around two million kind of sliding yeah, all over yeah. the lineup and and being flexible rather than you know the three point five where you, you kind of like to either solidify you know your role or or we'll spend that elsewhere kind of thing so yeah i i like that pickup you mentioned him already keith uh cup denter extraordinaire <laughs> nicholas obey kubel signs one year one million and i i really like this this pickup um and that was even before nick you went on a on a posting <laughs> spree of all those hits that he was dishing out uh your thoughts on this one yeah, no, pretty much exactly as you said, a nice cheap pickup for the bottom six, a guy who can maybe bring a little bit more energy uh, to that group than what we've seen in the last couple of years. You know, you've had guys like Wayne Simmons and last year Kyle Clifford was sprinkled into the lineup here and there and expected to bring that kind of energy. And while they're still capable of finishing their hits and kind of imposing their physical will, they don't exactly have the legs to keep up and, and create energy on a consistent basis the way that a player like Obey Kubel has shown that he can do. So, uh, you know, for a one-year, $1 million bet, I think that's a really nice pickup as someone who can kind of inject a little bit of life into that bottom six and just bring that tenacity and physicality that the team has kind of been short on. Yeah, I think we all kind of are, you know, liked what Colin Blackwell brought to the to the fourth line last year. And I think that it'll likely be a similar kind of water bug type of style, but with a bit more weight behind him and size like not that obey kubel's big but he's not five nine either like he seems to you know have a bit more uh, a kind of of a physical game than blackwell blackwell you know to his credit finished all of his checks but not necessarily with the same kind of force that that obey kubel can do and when you talk and and also just from an age standpoint too i mean he's going to be 26 all of next year like he, he's he just turned 26 so you know still got still on the right side of 30 um you know popped 11 goals last year too not yeah not completely inept offensively and kind of a, like we've talked about this before and it's not not a unique to the leafs thing i mean it's pretty much unique to anybody that's you know in the in a bit of a cap crunch contender status but you need guys that are going to potentially outperform their cap hit. And we've seen it with bunting last year. And I'm not saying about about obey Kubel is going to do anything near that, but he looks like a guy that could bring more than $1 million worth of value to the lease lineup. Um, so again, like these, these kind of bottom six signings, we're not really going to see a huge shakeup in the top six. Like this is what we have to look forward to. And yarn croak and obey Kubel kind of fit the mold of the types of players that I felt like the lease were missing um, after yet another first round loss. And back to Yaron Croak for just a second. I kind of liked it. And we we saw it on the opening day of free agency with the signings of Obey Cabell and Adam Gadet. The Leafs are kind of playing at that bottom tier of the free agent market. And I, I think, you know, kind of sitting around to allow that secondary market to kind of take shape was what allowed them to land a player like Yaron Croak on, on a deal that looks as, as good as it does. Not to say that it's a, a home run knockout and he's going to be a, a four or five million dollar player, but I, I think you're getting pretty good value on a player like Yaron Croak at two point one million per year, especially with what we're used to seeing in the free agent market. I think that four checking was a huge strength for the Leafs last season specifically, but over the last few seasons. But uh, you know, especially with that third line, and you just lost a huge chunk of that third line with Mikheyev signing in Vancouver. You got to replace that four checking, and I think both of those. Signings are, you know, good uh, good pieces to kind of try to, um, you know, keep some of what you lost on that front in Mikheyev. Um, you mentioned Adam Gaudet, another depth signing up front. Dennis Malgin also uh, returns. Did he ever play for the Leafs, or has he just kind of been haunting yeah. the halls, or what? <laughs> I think he played like eight or nine games for the Leafs really? after the the trade for Marchment, and, and I actually thought that he looked pretty good in those games, but he did not register a single point. Um, <laughs> definitely nothing to write home about or get overly excited about, but he's been a really productive player over in the Swiss League the last couple of years. He had a strong performance at the recent World Championships, so he's going to come into camp and, and fight for a job on that fourth line, most likely, and 
yeah, there's no risk to it. So uh, yeah, n- no problem with having Malgin return. I know that uh, he- he's not exactly the most beloved player in the, the Leafs fan base, uh, <laughs> considering what he was moved for. Um, kind of hearkening back to Alexander Kerfoot here a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. it, it, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a worthwhile bet for a guy who the, the team still owned his rights and, and he wanted to come take another crack at the NHL and yeah, all power to him. God, that had a pretty good world championship too, right? Yeah. What did he have? Six goals and six goals and 10, yeah. 10 games for the U S squad. Uh, it, he's a guy who's shown the ability to produce a little bit at the NHL level in the past. It, he had 30 plus points in about 60 games or something like that for the Canucks a couple of seasons ago still a relatively young player with some offensive upside I think you're getting a little bit closer to what Jason Spezza provided on that fourth line not this past season but the year before that when he was a really impactful player in terms of generating offense on that fourth line so uh, he wasn't quite as effective in that role last season. And I think you're, you're getting a little bit closer to, to that again with Adam Gaudet as a guy who can drive a little bit of offense uh, from the fourth line and chip in with some scoring here and there. Yeah, and I think another aspect to the Gaudet thing is that he's probably got a bit of a chip on his shoulder too, right? So like, you know, bouncing around a little bit, not really finding a role after having a pretty good kind of start to his career in Vancouver. So I mean, the guy that kind of probably feels like he's got a little bit to prove on this deal, too. So it could be a guy that's not, you know, not going to cheat you for effort or, or, or take a shift off or anything like that, which is will be nice to see. Uh, a couple of other depth signings uh, this time on the blue line and, and keeping fully in mind that all of the guys we're talking about right now could very well be gone on waivers by mid-October. Uh, Jordy Ben, Victor Mete. Um, both signed to, you know, bolster the blue line a little bit, but, you know, they're, they're most likely kind of well off the roster to, to start at least heading into camp. Any thoughts on either of those from either of you? Yeah, no, it's depth signings, guys that can just kind of provide a little bit of insulation in terms of injury or whatever whatever further moves the Leafs make this offseason because uh, we all know what the cap picture looks like right now and the fact that Rasmus Sandin is still unsigned. Uh, I, I think that Jordy Ben is is a, a decent option as a seventh defenseman who can just kind of bring a little bit of that veteran experience, some physicality, a guy who's tough to play against. You know, he's not the most fleet of foot back there, but it, for a, a number seven D man to be making league minimum as a guy who can step in and just give you solid minutes on a third pairing and, and be tough to play against, it, there's nothing wrong with that bet. Uh, and Victor Mete is kind of the polar opposite in terms of playing style, but still a guy who's very much a young player in the league ha- has shown the ability to, to give you decent minutes at the NHL level, uh, a guy who can sort of fill a different role if injuries arise than what Jordy Ben would be able to do. So I, I think they've kind of covered their base as well there in terms of depth. Um, chances are, as you said, one or both of those guys get lost on waivers at the, the beginning of the season. But if, as of right now, I think it's a solid organizational depth on the, on the blue line. No one, no one signs Leafs waivers players ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like Ben, Jordy Ben is your seventh defenseman. I think is completely fine. Like, I don't think there's any issues with that. I mean, Dubas has kind of shown a bit of a, a penchant for having one kind of rugged stay at home, you know, typical, you know, just big defenseman, like the Bogosian signing comes to mind. And not, I, I think, I don't think I'm, anybody's expecting Ben to come in and, and play the role that Bogosian played. Bogosian pretty, you know, well solidified that bottom pair role pretty quickly in, in, uh, in his tenure with the Leafs. But I mean, you look or if you look at like what fucking like Eric Goodbranson got and then oh, Jordan, Jordy Ben got, I mean, I think it's an, it's a no brainer. Like if you're, if you're going to, pay a little bit of money for some physicality on the blue line and some kind of insurance depth. Um, I think they did it the right way, (laughs) but yeah, I, I I don't really see Mete. I mean, it's kind of seems like a guy to go down and and just be a more experienced guy in the Marlies and, and kind of play some, some meaningful minutes down there. But yeah, I don't know. Not, not all that, kind of doesn't really move the needle for me but ben kind of is a little bit intriguing i'll I'll admit yeah i I would think that ben is is certainly more likely the guy that um gets in the lineup you know sooner and more frequently than than mete if if he does at all certainly he's a guy who's been through waivers mete has so wouldn't be surprised if uh, his leafs stint is short-lived um 
And Pierre Engvall is back. Mm-hmm. Rejoice. Uh, friend I, of the show. pleased with the contract, <laughs> I, I have to say. Friend of the show, Pierre Engvall. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty content with the contract. I've seen a little bit of blowback on it, but uh, one year, 2.25. Um, I mean, considering the season that he had, you got to think he would have done better than that in in. Uh, arbitration so you know good job i think by by the leafs to avoid that with him Uh, they really had no choice but to avoid arbitration with engvall just looking at the salary cap situation so even if you feel that that number is uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars more than you would have liked to see engvall get which which by the way i believe he was projected for a a 2.3 million dollar salary on a one-year deal by evolvinghockey.com and uh, they've historically been been pretty accurate with their contract projections for the most part so uh, even if you do feel that it's a couple hundred thousand dollars too much uh, if that's the price that you had to pay to avoid arbitration and a potential awarded salary of something in the three million range or three and a half million dollar range you know you look around the league at other guys who scored 15 goals and 35 points and and, brought decent defensive value you're probably looking at a little bit more than 2.25 million. So I think that was a nice little piece of business for Dubas to get that done ahead of uh, Engvall being able to file for arbitration. Just kind of took that risk away or the the chance that that he would get awarded something they couldn't afford. So yeah, nice little piece of business, I think. There's every chance that like he could take a step back um, this coming season, but you know, if even if he is just what he was last season, th- this is a great value mm-hmm. deal. And I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he takes another step forward. Like this is a big guy who skates well. He's had another year of experience under his belt, and frankly, has been part of a, a really successful unit with a couple of guys who play with like more of the physical edge and more of the aggression that you'd like to see out of him. So maybe a little bit of that rubs off a lot of speculation happening here, but uh, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, the, the craziest thing to think that he, he might have just a little more to give yeah. even than we, that we saw last season and, and what a, what a bargain that would be. Yeah, right? and, and now he's, he, now he's on a contract year. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think he, I think a little bit of that did rub off on him. Like I, I there was a noticeable change in his demeanor, three quarters of the way through the season he was mucking it up quite a bit more like he was finishing hits in a way that you know he maybe didn't have that much aggression behind in in his first year and a half or two years with the Leafs like I think like it's it's maybe a little bit difficult to get fired up about Pierre Engvall just because I think there's a connotation that at least that you know the three of us have had with him of being a little bit frustrating to watch at times but he he kind of turned a corner last year and i think if you if you were to look at uh, pierre engvall as did what he did last year on a different team and we just acquired him i think we would be super excited at the prospects of a you know 6 foot 4 whatever the hell he is uh, or 6 foot 5 winger that can score 20 goals potentially and and you know be pretty physical and good defensively like i think we'd all be fired up about that so it's i get it i get that it's not the sexiest you know signing but it's it's pretty needed and 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 you know like you said pretty good value and it's not like he went on like a shooting percentage bender last year either like you it nothing about his season seems like he should take a step back other than maybe just Pierre Engvall brain coming back a little bit that which is not <laughs> could could happen it, well kind of on that note though Engvall has always been a guy who's been a, a little bit of a I don't want to say late bloomer, but he's he's a guy who's kind of been on like a steady upward trajectory throughout his pro career. And though it might not be taking like gigantic leaps forward year to year, I think there's been steady improvement throughout the course of his time with the Leafs. So I don't think it's uh, far fetched to expect him to take uh, a little bit of a step forward. And as you said, Cam, even if he's the same player that we saw last year, that's pretty decent value at 2.25. Yeah, it's just about adding, you know, little things to your game as you go. And and there's certainly still room for that with him. So I'm excited to see what he brings uh, this year. I I didn't know that. I don't know that if you told me this time last year that I'd be saying that now, uh, I would have believed you. But here we are. I'm excited for Pierre Engvall this season. And you you got to love a a homegrown seventh round pick, too. Like, there's some some romance to that. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. Um, So, 
with, with Engvall now done, um, Rasmus Sandin is kind of the last piece of outstanding business here for, for Kyle Dubas. We you know we expect there'll be some more movement, uh, maybe some trades, maybe some more depth signings, maybe some bigger signings. But uh, at the very least, something's got to happen with Rasmus Sandin. And, and we talked about this a little bit in the last show. So, uh, Nick, I don't know how much more you want to get into it. But, uh, Keith, we didn't hear from you on Sandin. What, what's your kind of inclination with what's going to happen here? Is he going to get a deal done? Uh, do you think he's going to be part of a package? What What do you expect to, to play out here with the, the young defense? I mean, it's hard It's it's hard to really kind of guess or speculate on it. I mean, what I hope for is is, is for a deal to be done here pretty soon. I, I don't I don't see him as a guy that I, I'm, you know, excited at the prospects of moving on from, you know, this early into his career. I'm a big fan of his of his and really enjoyed watching him kind of take that next step last year. And for most of last year, he seemed to be, you know, arguably the least second best defenseman because um, there was, you know, spurts where Brody didn't look all that hot. So, I mean, and, and definitely the second most important defenseman, you know, on the, on the roster right now. So it's hope, hoping, I, I mean, I don't think the Leafs are in any kind of position to get, you know, one of those kind of long-term RFA deals where you're paying a little bit more than you should right now in hopes that you get a deal two years from now. Um, it's going to be probably a one-year or two-year deal, maybe a three-year deal, but I, I just doesn't seem likely. Um, hopefully in that kind of two to two and a half million dollar range. I mean, it's weird in the sense that he really hasn't done that much more than Timothy Lilligren has and Lilligren's yeah. two times 1.4. So it's, is it like, are you paying them based off of like the hype and the projection and the fact that, I mean, he can't even say it cause he was a first round pick cause Lilligren was a higher pick. So it's, it's a weird dynamic. And then the whole crowded left side thing. I mean, this has all been beat to death and I'm not adding anything new here, but um, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. I don't necessarily think that they're going to move on from him. Um, and I've, said this before just i think with you know with you guys and just in chatting about it but like if you're looking at moving something from the left side moving moving on from muzzin seems to make more sense other than the fact that you're kind of removing a pretty big body but muzzin's an injury away from retirement like i i don't i'm not comfortable with the idea of of moving sandine to get a couple more years out of muzzin even though sandine would obviously net a much bigger return i i'm most concerned or or most kind of uh interested in the lineup construction of having four guys that pretty much exclusively play the left side that part it doesn't seem like sandine would be overly jazzed to to move over to the right side um, admittedly, I don't know much about Giordano's past and whether or not he, he did much play has ever played much on the right side. So there's not a lot of options for that to happen. So that's probably the most kind of, I don't know, uh, unresolved thing in my head. Um, I think the contract gets done probably pretty soon. I, I think the biggest thing that you touched on there for me is the, the, the comparison with Lilligren. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to know how these negotiations with Dubas and Sandine have gone. But it, to me, it seems a, a little bit of a stretch for him to be asking for significantly more than what Lilligren got, given what they've both accomplished at the NHL level so far. I know Sandine got, got off to a bit of a, a quicker start in terms of his NHL career than Lilligren did. But if and, and also, I mean, not to, not sorry to mean to interrupt, but like if I'm Sandine's agent, I'm also saying like, well, Rasmus didn't get the opportunity to play with a, a Mark Giordano to, to kind of have his l- little like coming out party, right? Like he, he hasn't really had necessarily that luxury afforded to him the way that Lilligren did. Yeah. And I think that's fair, but w- when you're talking in terms of negotiation and just raw numbers and, and, you know, contributions that yeah. they've made to this point or, or what you can be expecting to get out of them moving forward, I just don't see a huge divide between Sandine and Lilligren. And a- admittedly, like, I'll start off by saying, like, Rasmus Sandine is obviously still a very high quality prospect and I expect him to be a good NHL player. I don't think that I'm quite as high on him as maybe the hive mind is, you know, for a, a 5'11 defenseman who doesn't necessarily have the, the best mobility or skating ability. Uh, I, I think that there are a couple more warts in his game than maybe some people would like to admit, but he still is a, a very important piece of this organization. And when you look at what's coming on the left side, on, on the on the back end in the future, 
there really isn't a whole lot behind Sandine. So when you're looking at your left side being made up of Morgan Riley and an aging, potentially, you know, as you said, one injury away from retirement, Jake Muzzin, and then, you know, an even more aging Mark Giordano, (laughs) it's not a really comfortable position to be in to be considering moving on from, you know, the only promising left side defense. Well, I don't want to say only, but the the most promising left side defense that that the Leafs have in their system. Uh, I I think it's it's a really interesting situation and some of the the rumblings that are, are coming out of it it doesn't seem like Sandine is all that pleased with his place uh, here or, or what he sees his place as uh, right now. Uh, it, it's, it is a difficult situation, but he, he doesn't really have a lot of leverage or any leverage at all in these negotiations. Uh, he doesn't have Arab rights. Uh, the, the Leafs can kind of just kind of sit around and wait until he's ready to accept the deal. But you just kind of get to wondering about what this means for the relationship between the player and team over time. And yeah, it's going to be something that's interesting to monitor in the coming weeks here. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have to add really on, on Sandine is when I got the news on Yarncroak, I didn't see that it was Yarncroak. I got uh, the insider notifications that were just quote tweeting Matt Maple Leafs that said uh, the terms. So when I, I see uh, Chris Johnston quote tweeting the Maple Leafs with four times 2.1 million, I almost flipped my shit thinking that they <laughs> nailed down Sandine for just the most sweetheart deal for the next four years, but uh, was not meant to be, unfortunately. But we might get that over too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, so want to talk about the the draft class here a little bit in a minute um but before we move on from kind of the free agency chat uh, there's still some names out there who, who are you guys kind of uh eyeing up as potential targets for the lease I, I think that we're all kind of keen on nino niederreiter i don't know how how likely that is but um you know if you moved out Kerfoot and Hall, maybe it could happen. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a pipe dream. Um, and, and, you know, I think this entire discussion comes with the caveat that we're expecting at least one of Kerfoot or Hall to move, uh, most likely both of them, if I had to, if I had to guess right now. Um, but there's, there's still some interesting names out there in free agency, especially, you know, considering we're about a week into it here, there's some other solid depth options and guys who had strong seasons last year. You know, you're looking at a guy like Evan Rodriguez scored 20 plus Danton Heinen scored 20 plus Sonny Milano had a nice year in Anaheim. Um, even a guy like Sam Gagne, who can probably be had for fairly cheap as, as another option on that fourth line to provide a little bit of offense and just kind of veteran experience. There are some interesting names left out there, but I think it's going to be a matter of what kind of flexibility the the Leafs are going to be able to create for themselves here with whatever trades they decide to make. Because as it stands right now, they're already over the salary cap limit and they still don't have Rasmus Sandin signed. So there's definitely some further transactions to come here. Um, The obvious choices seem to be Alex Kerfoot or Justin Hall, two guys who are, set to be uh, unrestricted free agents next off season. And it, it, when you look at, we already discussed Kerfoot, but getting to Hall a little bit, if he's going to be a guy who is starting the year as maybe your extra defenseman, $2 million is a lot Can't for a team like the Leafs to be paying for, for a, a player in that role. And I think that kind of gets to the, the Jordy Ben acquisition a little bit. It's a lot more palatable to be having a, a veteran physical defender who's not playing every night making league minimum rather than taking up $2 million worth of salary cap space on a team that, you know, needs every penny to kind of maximize their, their depth for their regular lineup. So, uh, yeah, lots of interesting names still out there, but it's going to come down to what the Leafs are able to do with the guys that are already on their roster. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Uh, now we clear the floor and we allow Keith to talk about, uh, Zach Aston Reese. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the only guy you didn't mention. I think that, that I mean, I think there's a bit, of, I left him out specifically for yeah, you. He's the guy I've wanted, uh, basically for the beginning of the off season, even before the Leafs started to kind of get linked to him, um, before last Wednesday. But I mean, the only other guy that you didn't touch on, um, would be like a Sonny Milano. I, I would almost any, any role that Sonny Milano is going to come in and, and play, uh, you know, for the Leafs, I'd almost rather just give that to, to Nick Robertson right now. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, I don't know if that's a good fit. I mean, an intriguing player for sure. I just don't know if like for a guy like, uh, I mean, of his kind of skill level to be not qualified and, and for a team to take a flyer on like that's, 
I would, I would, should think there'd be a lineup of teams interested in him, but it doesn't, I mean, it hasn't played out yet, but um, yeah, I, I think Zach Aston Reese just doubling down on the whole tenacious bottom six thing. Like, I don't, th- I mean, if he had 250 hits or something insane last year, like he just, you know, he's a guy that I think he would very quickly become a fan favorite in, in Toronto. Um, and he's not just your prototypical fourth liner that just goes out and runs guys. Like, I think he has extremely good defensive impacts, especially for a guy, you know, of, of his kind of game um, or what you think of his game kind of thing of just being like a physical fourth liner. So, um, you know, I think when they acquired like Kyle Clifford, there was that kind of thought of like, oh yeah, he's a fourth liner, he's physical, blah, blah, blah. But he, he's pretty good defensively. Like it kind of seems like the sim- similar idea, um, but maybe even just a little bit better. So um, he's a guy I'd be intrigued by. You mentioned Niederreiter. Like the thing with him, I think you'd. I think the only way that that even becomes a possibility is if if Muzzin's moved out too, and not necessarily because I think that you know he's going to Niederreiter's going to take a five million dollar contract. I don't think that that's the case. But well, like you mentioned, like, they're already in the red right now. Like, and they got to sign Sandine. So moving Kerfoot or Hall really just allows you to just get Sandine. So you know you, there'd be have to be more salary you know, move, to be moved, um, to, to acquire a guy like that, even though I think like, but wouldn't he be a person? I was just, that was the next sentence out of my mouth. I, I don't think you, there's a better fit for the second line, um, out there right now, or even since the beginning of the off season and, and who's already been signed, he, he's by far the best fit plays with a bit of an edge, you know, good, good defensive impacts, good four checker can finish, can, 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 you know, still play, um, offense. Like he's exactly what, the Tavares and, and Nylander line need, um, but it just feels like it's a bit of a stretch for it to it to work. Oh yeah, it's definitely a stretch. But can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the whole point of this pod, buddy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we'll see how it plays out over the next few weeks. Probably be some bargain bin shopping, and who knows? Maybe uh, you know the the Nita Rider market is is kind of dry at this point, and. and We'll just have to see. Just keep those fingers crossed, boys. Uh, Nick, we want to uh, talk a little bit about the draft here. Um, and, and I think that we'll we'll spend a little bit more time on this as we kind of really get into the dog days of the offseason and we need things to talk about. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time on, on the system and, and specifically some of the prospects that uh, uh, are now the newest Leafs. Um, so just kind of a quick recap before we kind of get into your thoughts on, on the crop here. Um, the Leafs did trade down, as we mentioned earlier, with Chicago to ship out Peter Mrazek's contract. Uh, they sent pick 25 along with Mrazek to Chicago for the 38th pick. And they picked up a, a couple of additional selections as well, uh, sending the 79th pick in the third round to Vegas for picks 95 and 135. And then they also uh, acquired an, an additional fourth rounder this year from Nashville by shipping out uh, their fourth for next year. Um, so five players added to the system with this draft. Uh, and I guess we can start from the top. Frazier Minton, the first selection. Uh, and Nick, I, I don't think you had him rated quite this high. I don't know that many had him rated quite this high. It seemed like a, a bit of an overdraft, but a guy that the, the Leafs seem pretty keen on. Yeah, well, I think that even with the, the moves that the Leafs made to trade down a couple of times, first with the Mrazic contract uh, going to Chicago and then the, the trade down and with the third round pick, I think that the Leafs still ultimately got the the two players that they were targeting mm-hmm. with those original selections. Uh, it, it seems like the club was really, really high on Fraser Minton. He bears some similarities to last year's second rounder, Matthew Nyes, just in terms of kind of play style, but also in the fact that they really turned it on down the second half of their season. Uh, Minton played at a, a point per game pace over the last 25 games in the regular season, had a really strong playoffs for Cam Loops as they went on a deep run. Um, as you said, maybe a little bit overdrafted. He's not someone that I had ranked that highly. Uh, the Leafs Nation, we did a consolidated rankings list where uh, Kyle Cushman, who's been on the show with us a couple of times, he uh, he averaged out the draft rankings from a lot of the major outlets or whatever. And uh, Minton was, I think, in the 70s on our consolidated rankings. Uh, he was ranked as high as 47 on Bob McKenzie's list. But this really seems like a player that the Leafs had zeroed in on, um, especially when you consider 
their history for trading down and the fact that they didn't have a whole lot of draft capital going into this year and they still decided to stand pat at 38 and, and take a guy who was maybe considered a bit of a reach in that spot. Uh, prior to the draft, I wrote about or making the case for kind of going a little bit safer with the with the high picks in the draft this year just to kind of give themselves a little bit more NHL certainty. And I, I think they really struck a good balance with Minton at, at that pick, even though he's a player that I didn't have ranked quite that high. There is an element of safety to that pick. Uh, he definitely has the upside to become a, a strong middle six center who plays a physical game, can kind of impact things in transition and, and pot some goals. But even if it doesn't all work out for him, his base of skills that he already possesses he looks like a pretty surefire, solid bottom six player when all is said and done here. So even if he isn't able to reach his ultimate ceiling, I think that the Leafs still got an NHL player here. And that's something that I was really advocating for uh, with these high picks, just because they've taken a lot of high swings in recent years. And then you've got the unfortunate situation with uh, Rodion Amirov, who they drafted in the first round a couple of years ago. I, I, again, I didn't have Minton rated this high, but... I'm going to defer to authority here a little bit and trust that uh, what the Leafs see in him obviously made it worth selecting him at that spot. And he's a player who that they believe has a lot of upside. I think Duba said after the draft, he's a guy who hasn't been playing high level hockey for that long. So there's still a lot of upside for, for this player, a guy who just turned 18 years old right before the draft, one of the younger players available and just the complete nature of his game and, and that offensive upside that's still there grown to really like the pick over time here. Yeah. And if, if that was the guy that they've had, that they had identified in that range as, as their guy, it just makes the Mrazic trade that much more tidy, right? Like if they were ready to take him, I mean, not, not saying they would have taken him at 25, but you know, if they had their, their heart kind of set on him, then I'm sure they don't feel like they missed out on anything by moving back those nine picks. So it just makes it that much more tidy. Yeah, it seems like the guy that they really did have their heart set on with that 25th pick was Liam Ogren, who who went uh, a few picks before that to Minnesota at 19. It's, it, it was reported that the the trade discussions for Mrazic and moving down from the 25th pick really seemed to pick up once Minnesota made that selection. So he was a guy that I had mentioned in our uh, preview pod ahead of the draft as a guy that I was really interested in as well. It uh, would have been great to see him fall, but I think you know, when all was said and done, to be able to, to move off the Mrazic deal and still get a player that the organization had clearly identified as someone they wanted to inject into their system, uh, yeah, another good piece of business there. So also on that uh, preview podcast, um, we talked about the third round pick at the time, which was the 79th choice. Uh, the Leafs ended up moving down to 95. And Nick, when we were talking about 79, you didn't think Nick Moldenhauer would be available to the Leafs. You think you thought he'd be off the board by then. They ended up getting him at 95. And like yeah. you said, you know, you, you think that they kind of really had their heart set on, on these two top two guys that they ended up getting a little later by trading down. So overall, likely they, they're pretty happy with their haul. Um, really, really pleased with this pick personally. What were your thoughts? Yeah, kind of on the flip side of the the Minton pick and it being considered a bit of a reach, it seems like they got pretty good value. Uh, again, time will tell with these prospects. It, it's, it's all going to take a few years to, to play out and see what these guys become. But on those consolidated rankings that I had mentioned, uh, Moldenhauer was uh, the 80th ranked prospect on that list. And he was ranked as high as uh, 40th overall on Scott Wheeler's list. I believe I had... Moldenhauer around the 60 range so he was a player that I was really glad to see the Leafs be able to nab with that 95th spot like I was ready for them to take him at 79 and would have been quite happy about it at that spot Uh, another guy who maybe a little bit of American inefficiency in terms of a guy who he missed a lot of time to start the year with his story's been well documented. He had that awful illness to begin the season that doctors weren't really able to completely nail down. And once he returned from that, it was only a few seconds into his first shift with the Chicago this past season that he suffered a really horrific injury, a skate blade up to the face, split him from his chin to his ear. He underwent surgery and up like 175 stitches or something like that to seal up the cut. And, you know, obviously missed a, the entire beginning part of the season. But once he came in and got back into the lineup for Chicago on a regular basis, he was just stellar for them. Highly skilled player. 
he's not the biggest guy, but I think he plays pretty hard, has good contact balance uh, to be able to kind of play through traffic and make those skilled moves uh, around defenders and get to the middle of the ice. I think as he continues to develop physically and add some more strength, that's going to become an even more pronounced part of his game. But yeah, a, a guy who... Had he played the entire season and hadn't had to face such difficult circumstances uh, to begin his draft year, I don't think he's a guy that's hanging around till 95th in this draft and a hometown boy to boot. So uh, that's always nice to see as well. Uh, three more picks. Uh, Dennis Hildeby, big goaltender from Sweden in the fourth round. Uh, Russian forward Nikita Gribyonkin in the fifth, and then their final pick uh, towards the end of the seventh round, Brandon Luzowski, which I, I kind of liked. He had a really nice scoring season in the WHL, kind of uh, that, that typical undersized scorer that uh, Dubas likes to, to swing on this time in, in the seventh round instead of uh, you know closer towards the top. So um, overall, I thought that it was a, it was solid work. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on the, the draft class as a whole? And, and if there's any of those three that you kind of want to give a note on, feel free. Well, heading into the draft with just three picks and being able to come away with, with five prospects and, you know, as we said, still landing the, the, the two guys that they really wanted with those first couple of picks that they went into the draft with, uh, I think that they did quite well. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about Hildeby or actually much of anything about Hildeby ahead of the draft. He's a guy who's already been passed over a couple of times, uh, but he underwent double hip surgery uh, a couple of years ago or uh, within the last year or something like that. And he said it's really added to his ability to to be flexible in the crease and just trust his movements and stuff like that a lot more. He put up really strong numbers last season in the Swedish Junior League and in limited action at the SHL level. So a, a guy with his size and the, the athleticism to go along with it, I think that's definitely a worthwhile bet. The fact that he's a little bit further along in his development as a guy who went through the draft a couple of times already, maybe offers a little bit more certainty in terms of what his overall projection is going to be. And he's just a little bit closer to the NHL than most goaltenders are when they're selected in the draft. Does he slate as the, is he going to start this year in the SHL? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with Hildeby. Uh, he's still under contract with Faristad in the SHL for a couple of more seasons, but the Leafs wasted very little time in getting yeah. his name on an entry level contract after drafting him, which, you know, it, that in itself is a bit unique for a, a fourth rounder, especially an overager. Uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly what that means in terms of where he'll be playing next season. I suspect he'll be loaned back to the SHL. Um, but he, if that is the case, he should be in line for more significant playing time than he saw this past season. Uh, I think he got into like seven games at, at the top level, but he put up a 931 save percentage in those games. He also had a 931 in his 12 games at the J20 level. So uh, if, trying to gauge what these prospects are going to be is you know almost an exercise in futility a lot of times, just because the, the uncertain nature as you get further into the draft, it's only amplified further when you're talking about a goalie. Yeah. As we said earlier, it's just such a volatile position and you never really know what you're going to get out of a guy from year to year. But in terms of traits that you're looking for when you're drafting a goaltender, I think he checks a lot of the boxes. Great size, has put up good numbers over the last couple of years at a, at a decently high level. Uh, there's just not a huge sample size to go off of with him. So it's going to be interesting to see how he develops. But I think he was a, a very worthwhile swing. And another player that it seems like the Leafs clearly identified uh, it, throughout the scouting and, and draft process as someone they really wanted. Uh, they moved back into the fourth round to select him, shipping out next year's fourth rounder. So uh, another nice little piece of business for a player that they had clearly identified as someone they wanted. Uh, Grabenkin looks like an interesting player as well. Tons of skill. He, he went through the draft last year unselected. Uh, he put up really good numbers uh, for Magnitogorsk's uh, junior team over in Russia this past season. Good size, really good hands, good playmaking ability. Uh, Again, really uncertain what you're ever going to get out of a, a guy selected in the fifth round, uh, never mind someone who was already undrafted and playing in the Russian Junior League. But the, just the, the, the limited viewings I've had of him since he was selected by the Leafs, uh, there's definitely some intriguing traits in his game as well. Uh, kind of a, a blend of that size and projectability uh, along with some high-end offensive skill. So. He's a he's a guy that I think was worth the bet in the fifth round. Uh, I saw he was rated a little bit higher by some other uh, outlets over in Europe. 
And with Lazowski, I think that's the exact kind of swing you want to be making in the seventh round. He's a guy who I was, frankly, I was surprised that when I saw his name as the Leaf selection with the the breakneck pace of the second day of the draft, it was really hard to kind of keep up, uh, especially when I was trying to you know move players to their new teams for the Dauber Prospect website as they're being drafted and things like that. So when I saw Lazowski uh, as the Leafs pick in the seventh round, I was uh, both surprised and excited. He's a guy who I think on our consolidated rankings, he was in the 80 to 90 range as well. A guy who likely fell because of his lack of size. He's not necessarily the most explosive skater for a smaller player. I think he's got really good agility and, and kind of change of direction and stuff like that. But pure goal scorer, I think the only draft eligibles in the WHL who scored more than him were Matthew Savoy and Jagger Furcus, guys who went uh, you know early on in the draft. Uh, Savoy, a top 10 pick, and Furcus was early on day two. So, yeah, really worthwhile bet in the seventh round. I like that uh, swing a lot. He's a guy who could eventually become a, a really impactful goal scorer at the pro level. Uh, it's There's a lot of projection in his in his evaluation in terms of whether that's going to happen in the NHL or at the AHL level. But I think, yeah, again, worthwhile swing for a guy with that kind of offensive skill. Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pick your brain on that a little more. Uh, as we get into the summer, more draft talk, more uh, system talk, and uh, hopefully some more signings to talk about soon, too. And, and trades. That's that's what we want. Give us the transactions. <laughs> okay, well, good to do it again, gentlemen. Keith? Yes, it's great. Happy to be back. Yeah, welcome back. Good to have you back on board, and, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again soon. Yeah.